Hello and welcome to this latest Fraser of Allender podcast. My name is Mary Spowage, I'm the Interim Director of the Institute and I'm joined today by my colleagues Emma Congreve, David Iser and Stuart McIntyre. Today we're going to do um, a little preview of the election campaign which has just kicked off. Um, during this period the, the Fraser of Allender are going to be doing a number of podcasts, articles and blogs which hopefully will cover the main policy issues and main data that's been coming out to inform uh, the election campaign and the issues that are being discussed. This week to kick this off, we had a webinar with um, our colleague at Strathclyde, Professor Sir John Curtis, um, which was a really interesting event. Um, we had loads of people come and we had lots and lots of questions and we weren't able to get round all of those questions. So today we were gonna kind of reflect on that event and the issues that were discussed and also cover some of the areas that we weren't able to cover in the webinar just because there were so many questions. So I guess first um, I'll just kind of reflect that um, we, we sort of had a discussion about a number of big policy issues that might come up during the election campaign. There's obviously um, the pandemic and any economic recovery um, that we're looking forward to happening later in the year, hopefully. Um, and what sort of form that recovery might take. There's really big issues around climate change, around the inequalities that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And of course, longer term issues like our aging population are still big challenges and relate to some of the policy issues that have been discussed during the period of the pandemic, like social care and how we might fund it in the future. So there was lots of interesting issues discussed. Um, and, and that should be discussed, we hope, over the course of the election campaign. Um, however, after a, a week like we've had at Holyrood, um, it might be that um, a lot of it is, is, is sort of politicking and more heat than light on, on substantive policy issues. Um, and everyone might need a bit of a rest rather than have the energy to go into an election campaign. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. But I'll come to you first, um, David. Um, what did you sort of take out of our webinar um, that we had with John Curtis on Wednesday? Um, well, I think for me, uh, I mean, clearly we all know that the constitution is is kind of forming the backdrop to this election. Um, for me, what what was really brought home um, in in what uh, John Curtis was saying was that you know the constitution is not just the backdrop. In many ways, it is. Uh, the central part of this um, election and that in many ways that was brought home for me yesterday afternoon as well when a journalist from down south got in touch to say they wanted to uh, call me up to speak to me about the upcoming election and I said yep that's fine and it turned out that all of their questions for half an hour were about independence and the implications of independence and for the journalist you know those questions were synonymous with the election questions uh, because that's that's how central the constitution question is. So in some ways it, it it's it, it's maybe a bit um, demoralizing for those of us who, who hope that the election campaign is going to be all about the policy issues, uh, the devolved policy issues for the next parliament. Um, but hopefully those will get a look in as well. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And um, 
sometimes it's um, when we talk to journalists um, who um, aren't in Scotland all the time or deal with devolved issues, um, and, and the focus can be on, on um, issues like independence. But I've had a similar experience as well, David, um, and it is quite interesting how the election is maybe seen out with Scotland, now it's seen in those Westminster circles. Um, that even there it is seen as, as a kind of, not exactly, but a kind of a cosy verdict on what the Scottish people think about, um, think about independence. Um, and it does give us a, a kind of feel for how much it might dominate the debate. Um, so coming to you, Emma, what about you? What did you kind of think um, you took out of, of the, uh, the webinar we had on Wednesday? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. It was obviously a huge amount of interest in, in the constitutional questions and that will no doubt really dominate discourse. But there, there are some kind of related issues, I suppose, in terms of um, the powers that the Scottish Parliament um, now has, which, which do look quite different to how they were um, five years ago. And indeed, the kind of the fallout from the, the last referendum, the Smith Commission and the transfer of powers is still kind of um, taking root. So we will have a number of new powers um, that have already been devolved, but actually the operational kind of um, responsibility for it will transfer to Scotland. Um, and that's true for some of the social security benefits. So so I think in that kind of within that kind of thought about so what's the big constitutional question in independence is also, you know, how does um, Scottish Parliament grow and, and sort of change with its, with its new responsibilities and new powers that it's got, um, got since, since the last referendum. But also, you know, when, you know, we reflect on anything like this, the new powers are very new and exciting and, and will be used and probably will be changed. And we saw that with income tax, you know, big changes were made in the last parliament, but then, you know, you always think back to actually, so, but what, have they what tools have they got that they haven't done anything with um and we well I always come back to council tax on that in that that's been devolved since 1999 and and very little where some changes made um at the beginning of this last um parliamentary period but on the whole it remains a, an unreformed tax that, that is badly in need of reform so I think any debate on on elections and and big changes you know always brings those kind of big tough issues to mind that that these are the things that need to be tackled but actually will parliamentarians and you know any of the parties actually be brave enough to, to do to do some of those things that need to be done yeah it's interesting you say that I think it does seem that um, reform of council tax is going to take a lot of bravery because um, you know there's been review after review which points out the kind of problems with the system and sets out possible um, alternatives but yeah, you really need that bravery um, to, to implement them and accept that there may be losers um, in any change to the system. Um, and I suppose um, related to um, other, other forms of local taxation, um, it'll be interesting to see what the future is for, for non-domestic rates or business rates, um, given the sort of change to our economy that, that may be happening um, in the wake of the pandemic um, and the, the, sorts of the way that business is operating might be changing. Um, but just coming to you, Stuart, what, what did you sort of take out of, of, of Wednesday's event? I mean, it's interesting reflecting on what David and Emma just said there. I think undoubtedly the constitution is likely to play a big part in the election campaign itself, partly because for both the SNP and the Conservatives, this is very comfortable territory for them to squabble on. 
things might be slightly different for Labour. And I think there's a sense that Labour are trying to get people to talk about other issues. It'll be interesting to see how, to what extent that cuts through, how successful that is. But one of the things I was also struck by in the webinar in particular, as you said, Mary, we weren't able to get through all the questions or even, frankly, more than a fraction of them. But the interesting thing for me was the questions people were asking were taking us away from other areas. Yes, people were interested in asking about the constitutional question, but actually people were asking about much broader issues. And I think one of the areas that it would be really interesting to see play out through the election is to what extent on some of these other issues, we get beyond big picture, vague statements and agreement about things like net, net zero where all the parties will say, you know, we're committed to this, this is a big issue, we need to address climate change. But then what? What other policies and proposals that they think are required in order to get us there? And I think, for me, that transition will be interesting to look for during the election to be itself. Do we get beyond big headline slogans that are difficult to disagree with, um, which means everyone agrees with them, to talking about the specific proposals different parties have for addressing some of these issues. So that, that for me, is going to be the interesting thing to watch. That and, as I said, the extent to which the debate gets beyond the Constitution, gets beyond the comfort zone of, of some of the main parties. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you there, Stuart. And and it's it's not just the, the you know, the the kind of vague statements about, yes, we will do this, we will do that in order because this is really important, but it's like, well, how, not just how are you going to do it, but how are you going to pay for it? And and that's the key thing, I think, with Scotland in that with the balanced budget, we do need to really be very clued in to, to what the kind of trade-offs are with, with some of the policies and, and really sort of concentrate on the, um, the most uh, sort of optimal policy combinations in order to meet some of these um, ambitions. And um, you, you mentioned climate change, but child poverty is is the one that where there's a lot um, that needs to be done in order to meet some of the transformational targets that are in place. But it, it is possible, particularly um, for the interim targets that um, that are due in the next parliamentary period for child poverty. But it will require um, a lot of investment, and that money has got to come from somewhere, either from the rest of the budget or from um, tax income and it's we need to have those conversations um, now in order for them the plans to be credible and for, for things to actually happen as opposed to, to talking about them yeah i think that's completely right the the one thing just to build on that is i think one of the things i do think we've seen nearly enough attention or thought about is we spend a lot of money in Scotland. The Scottish government's budget this year has obviously benefited from additional spending fighting the pandemic, but there's a lot of money spent by the Scottish government every year. And there's not really much of a sense of the Scottish parliament in general, understanding the, or, or reprioritizing spend. You know, it tends to spend, the spending that takes place tends to, persist in much the same way as it did the year before, as it did five years before. And I think one of the things that would be nice to see through the election is 
some reflection from different parties on how they might try and reprioritize the budget, given the existing constitutional settlement, but how might they try and use that pretty big budget to do things a bit differently? And it would be nice to see some reflection of that in the debate. At probably a forlorn hope, given everything else that's likely to enter into the mix here. But I think for me, even through the, the COVID pandemic, we haven't really seen any sense of like acknowledgement that some reprioritization could be done and might be beneficial. Yeah, there's a sort of um, a current theme here um, in terms of Emma talking about being honest about trade-offs, I suppose, um, and um, and what you're talking about, Stuart, about reprioritization. And I suppose the theme that we talk about a lot um, seems endlessly is about really understanding um, what effect money actually has when it's spent, you know, um, evaluating policy um, and, and basing future policy on, on what kind of actually works and actually achieves the outcomes you're trying to achieve. Um, so I think that's a really important theme that we'll probably keep talking about, you know, whatever your policy choices, they should be evidence-based and you should uh, ensure that you evaluate them to make sure that they're actually achieving the, the outcomes that you're interested in. Um, well, just coming back to, you, um, you, you guys have both touched on, on climate change and on child poverty, but coming back to one of the other big issues, and we had a question about this in the webinar that we didn't have time to, to, to sort of tackle. I wonder if I could ask you, Emma, what you think about what the, the next stages might be for the social care system in Scotland. Mm. We obviously had a big review into that, um, which was published in earlier this year, um, and it's been a focus, obviously, throughout the pandemic in terms of the social care system. So I just wonder what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of those big issues that, that has been um, avoided, sort of really tackling by, um, by many governments over many years. Um, and so the review that took place earlier this year into adult social care, um, I think, um, you know, was a was a was was a good step forward to have a review. But you know, we can't now have another review. We just need to get on <laughs> actually doing something about the findings. Um, so this next parliamentary term, you know, should be where some of that change happens. Um, I think it's fair to say, you know, there is not necessarily always agreement about the right way forward. Um, but there is this kind of general. Um, consensus that um, the social care system needs to be put on more of a par with the with the sort of national health um, service type system in order so that there there aren't these kind of um, there isn't there aren't these gaps in care and there aren't these um, huge costs associated with that some that some families have to cope with um, and yeah so as, as as i say it's something that we we have a set of um, recommendations on from from Derek Feely um i mean one thing that we're very um we have to be very cautious about is that it's not just older people that are um you know at the top of the well the only priority in this i mean with an, an aging population um that is a really important part of of the social care system but there are many um working age adults that also rely on social care and many carers of those um, those working age um, adults who, you know, also need uh, careful consideration in how um, how the system works for them. Within that, we've also got the third sector plays a really big role and a really crucial role in the social care sector. So it's not just about um, you know a sort of a, a publicly funded and publicly run service um, the fact that the third sector are involved and do so much and, and, and arguably sometimes do so um, 
in with better quality services than, than the pu pu public sector is able to do is, is something that we need to build on rather than I think um, move away from and then there's the, the the issue of choice for people so um you know social care because it is it's it's about you know very um obviously personal situations and you know for many people living with lifelong conditions um, and, and giving people the choice and um, you know it's not necessarily that someone else knows better than the person themselves what is what is good for them so I think with um, with, with any changes to social care it's, it's putting the voices of, of, of users at the front of it has to be very important and uh, you know I think the Phoebe review um, entitled social care sort of made that quite clear as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just sort of taking a step back, David, um, the, this, the devolved powers, the new powers that Emma mentioned that have come in, in, in the course of this parliament. Um, I wondered if there's any reflection from you on, um, on how those powers have been used um, over the course of the parliament um, and you know, what challenges there's been in sort of enacting things, maybe quite in the way it was, it was envisaged when the Smith Commission published its report um, and, and, and what sort of happened and what that might mean for you know, what happens over the next parliament in terms of these powers. I think some of the changes uh, have probably gone beyond what some people anticipated. Income taxes is the um, sort of key example of that, I guess, I think a lot of people's preconception was that, um, you know, in reality, we would get this devolved power and the Scottish government would choose not to use it in the sense of doing something that was particularly different from the way that the UK government used that power. And of course, we've actually seen quite a big divergence uh, in income tax policy, certainly for certain types of taxpayers basically taxpayers in the top sort of 15% of the income distribution in Scotland. So um, there's an example there of where a new, a new uh, power has become operational and there's been um, quite a degree of divergence between what happens here um, and what happens down south. And there are, there are increasingly examples of other areas where there is policy divergence, not, not necessarily in relation to powers that were devolved following the Smith Commission, but you know you can think of um, issues like uh, tuition fees, uh, aspects of social care. There are increasingly, I think, examples of where policy diverges, and, and that's that's good. That's what um, devolution is uh, all about. Some of the um, I don't know. It's maybe describe them as unforeseen consequences of of, um, of devolving um, some some taxes in a partial way um you know have been over the course of the parliament i guess the one of the examples i can think of is is the interaction between the higher rate threshold and income tax and the the national insurance threshold which means you have a strange situation where certain taxpayers um earn in between a certain amount you know, are, are paying much more national insurance than, than they would be if they were in a higher rate band um, in the rest of the UK. And I don't know about you, David, but I can't imagine that that was kind of thought about or, you know, envisaged as an issue when when these powers were brought in. I'm sure that's right. I mean, the Smith Commission only had a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. didn't really have a chance to do. There was certainly no analysis of what might happen 
um, if there was a difference in higher rate threshold in Scotland. Um, and it does uh, uh, create some challenges. Um, I mean, there were other, there were plenty of other things that, that that weren't analysed in the development of the subsequent Scottish fiscal framework. You know, the the the, the degree of borrowing powers and budget management tools. Um, there was no real analysis behind um, those things. They were they were largely sort of finger in the air judgments, and um, it's become increasingly clear that there's a need to revisit some of those. Um, budget management tools. And that's not something that I anticipate will play a big part in the election, the discussion of that sort of minutiae stuff, but it's but in theory it's something that the two governments will need to get together and, uh, and, and, and thrash out some reforms to those to the fiscal framework later on this year. I think that's a good point. Well, it's interesting I think the extent to which the fiscal framework sort of become a bit of a technical issue that is sort of in the background, despite how important it is. And so it's very unlikely to feature directly in the election debate itself. But I think David's right, where we have seen tax policy, particularly an income tax, diverge, it's, not, it's never particularly clear to me how aware people are that that's happened. So probably the most well-known narrative about divergence in ta income tax policy in Scotland is about trying to make it more progressive because we've got the majority of people in Scotland paying less than they would in the rest of the UK. But of course, as we all on this uh, podcast know, that that's an artificial construct, you know, that was, that was done for, um, you know, it, it was set at a point where that claim could be made, but it's, it's only 20 pounds less tax a year for these people. So you know, that kind of headline message is underpinned by 20 pounds a year lower. Um, in contrast to what David was flagging up, which is actually for people who earn um, above um, the um, say £27,000 a year, they do pay increasingly and significantly more tax than they would elsewhere. And I think while the fiscal framework itself isn't going to feature in the debate, let's be honest, unless it's a subset of debates about the constitution, income tax policy certainly should feature because it's for a, a number of people having a, a a real impact on the amount of tax they pay. Um, so it'll be interesting to see to what extent that features and whether or not parties actually come forward with different strategies or di different policies around tax. So um, we've seen kites being flown around um, much more innovative use of the tax policy and, and the welfare powers that Scottish Parliament now have. It'll be interesting to see if we, we see any concrete proposals that underpin that as opposed to sort of vague and difficult to disagree with statements about using the tax powers in a more progressive way and trying to eradicate poverty. Um, so that for me will be a really interesting one. To what extent do we see that? Because you know, back in 2016, we didn't really have that experience of the, the devolution of tax and welfare powers 
from which parties could realistically bring forward more concrete proposals. So that may be a difference in this election, or it may just be, um, again, everything stays very big picture, and we're no further forward about where parties see these powers being used in the next parliament. Yeah, yeah, that's all, all fair. And, um, you know, you're right. I mean, income tax is such a large part of so many people's, um, you know, and what they take home, you know, it, it should feature in terms of um, the party's vision about how different parties' visions on how they would use these powers um, in the next parliament. Um, I can't believe your implication, David, that um, everyone isn't as interested in the fiscal framework as we are. It's uh, absolutely shocking. Well, there is a question there about what we, I mean, Stuart raises a point about what is the fiscal framework and actually the Scottish and UK governments basically disagree about what is covered by the fiscal framework yeah. and that's why they can't agree on when and at what point they should start reviewing the fiscal framework because they don't actually agree on what is fiscal framework and what is fiscal settlement. Uh, and kind of draw a line artificially between those two things. I can feel an article coming on. <laughs> what is the fiscal framework? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'm coming to another um, area where we didn't really have time to answer <laughs> one of the questions that were asked. Um, I'm going to come to you, Stuart. Um, and that's kind of about the outlook for the, the labour market. Um, so obviously, throughout the pandemic, um, since since last um, last March, we've had the the job retention scheme in place um, to support employment um, and to keep people attached to employers who are going to kind of um, survive through, throughout the uh, after the pandemic, um, and that's now been extended to September, albeit with increasing employer contributions. Um, we've obviously had a, huge challenges for for young people going through education. Um, uh, both 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 uh, at school level and also in terms of higher education um, and some of those those um, those uh, students will now be trying to enter the labor market into a very difficult environment um, so I just wondered what your thoughts were um, given we had new labor market data this week you know what's maybe coming for the labor market um, as the furlough scheme ends and, and what are you thinking in terms of I guess future support that the labor market might need yeah I Absolutely. As you said, new labour market data this week, we've basically seen a year now of labour market data not really moving, particularly given the scale of what we know COVID's done to the economy. So if you look at wider data, GDP data, other measures of, of activity in the economy, it's remarkable how little the labour market indicators, the headline measures like unemployment, employment, etc., have have changed. When you start looking at the number of people accessing unemployment-related benefits, you see much more movement. So we've seen un over a hundred thousand more people claiming unemployment-related benefits in Scotland now compared to this time last year. So we have seen much more. The, the pandemic has had a real impact on, on household finances and on um, people's situation. But you're right to say that when you look at these headline indicators, it doesn't seem to reflect that. Now, a big part of the reason for that is, of course, the furlough scheme. And I think we've all, over the last year or so, said with the successive deadlines for furlough ending, we've been saying that's that's the point at which we'll really see the extent to which there's going to be a shakeout in the labour market. Now, that's now been pushed in the Chancellor's latest announcement to the end of September. 
So that's really the point that we focus on now in terms of that potential big shakeout in the labor market. To give people an idea of the scale, if we think about there were about 500,000, so half a million jobs in Scotland furloughed last summer. That's now down a bit, but it's still around 360,000 jobs in Scotland on furlough. So that's huge. Now, obviously, as we ease the restrictions, we may again see the number of jobs in furlough fall back a bit. But even towards the tail end of last year, where we had lots of restrictions being eased through August, September, the number of jobs in furlough in Scotland only fell to about 200,000. So we've still got a big chunk of people who throughout this period have been on furlough. Now, if when the furlough scheme ends, they can go back to their old jobs or find alternative jobs quite quickly, then we may well not see much movement in these headline indicators. But that's the big unknown. Now, you asked about, you asked about policy. I think one of the interesting things, you know, everything that we've I've said so far is, is really underpinned by policies that have been in operation through the pandemic across the UK. The devolved powers very much focus on the longer term dimensions of this problem. So it's focused on skills and education. It's focused on partly with the devolution of welfare powers, providing some immediate support. But the furlough scheme is a UK government scheme. When it ends is up to the UK government. There's been an uplift to universal credit being brought in through the pandemic. Again, that's up to UK government when they want to, how long they want to keep that in place. So how all this shakes out is partly a function of things that aren't issues in this election in that sense. But for the longer term picture, the issues around skills and education and providing, if you like, the, the human capital investment the economic development funding and support and initiatives very much is devolved and is something for uh, the Scottish government and the Scottish election itself. Yeah, um, I guess thinking about the the interesting um, kind of dichotomy of the um, the job retention scheme comes in at the end of September and this uplift universal credit comes in <laughs> at the end of September as well. Um, it just finally um, to finish off, Emma. Um, I mean, how does this interact potentially with devolved social security powers? Um, obviously, there's a new Scottish child payment. I mean, what's your expectation? You know, if we assume that this this uplift does finish, um, you know, are you expecting proposals to kind of, I don't know, um, fill that gap or you know, to, to use the, the new powers in a different way? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Scottish government as it's in the last parliamentary term has been quite clear that it doesn't necessarily see its role as mitigating um, reductions in benefits that take place that, are, that, that take place at the UK level. They think, you know, that's the UK government's responsibility. The Scottish government isn't there to pick up the pieces, but the Scottish government has targets on things like child poverty and a, and a general kind of, um, you know, aspiration to eradicate poverty in Scotland that's set out in the NPF and the social security system so a really key way of doing that so now the Scottish child payment is you know it's taken time but it is kind of up and running for 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 children under six anyway it, you know I think we've seen through the the building of the 
the Scottish child payment, how long it takes for this, you know, for the social security agency to get things up and running from scratch. And so, you know, there may, that, that would be one route to, to maybe quickly get more money out of the door if they, if this impact is really going to bite hard when the UC uplift goes, but yeah, they, they don't have the, the tools at their disposal just now to, you know, to, to give, you know, that money to, to everyone who will lose that money in universal credit. But I expect they will start to now look at um, other forms of assistance, such as uh, the disability and carer benefits, which are devolved and are going to start being operationalised in Scotland in the next parliament. So, you know, there's, they, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to see what, what comes out of this election in terms of um, better use of those powers. Um, but yeah, I think maybe they're more for thinking to the longer term rather than you know to mitigate what what, what the UK government will, will looks like they'll do in September um could debate the rights and wrongs of that but um you know if if the SNP forms it, the next government then I think that's what we would expect but look uh, guys thanks it was a really interesting discussion a good follow-up to our webinar with with John Curtis earlier in the week and um, so I'd just like to thank my colleagues for joining me today um uh, as we've said, um, please go to our website, fraserevalander.org, to see all of the election analysis and articles and podcasts we'll be doing uh, over the next six weeks, um, which should be uh, an interesting period. Um, and we'll see you again soon for our next Fraser Valander podcast.